of our current series, and um, I have the opportunity, the privilege, to uh, to do part for today. So, questions and answers, answering Q and A, answering the questions. Sorry, it's the title of our series, and uh, there's going to be ten total parts to this, just to give you a little heads up. Um, and we're going to get right into this week's question. Again, if you uh, aren't aware, I think you all are aware, but uh, if you missed any of these, or if you do miss any in the future, you can always go back on our website, on your YouTube channel, our podcast, all kinds of stuff, and, um, and catch up with us in this series. So we're going to look at the question this week. The question this week is, what about all the errors in the Bible? So that's the question we're going to be addressing this week. Um, again, this is stretching me a little bit, uh, this study, and uh, it's fun, but it, it's, it's good to be stretched. We all need a little stretching once in a while, right? A little expanding of our, our knowledge, and, and um, this has helped me a lot, and I've enjoyed just going through this study and, uh, and doing a little deeper research. So some believe that the Bible automatically contains errors because it's old, right? And antiquity doesn't equal errors. That's just—it's just not a thing. And and some use this this lie. They believe this lie, and then they they use it to opt out of believing in God. Like, how can I believe the Bible? It's full of errors. It's, I'm not. Surely, I'm not going to believe in God. He he can't keep a, a straight book. But no, that's that's not the case. And at this point, people will reach for anything when they've decided that God's Word is not what they want to accept as truth, and we have an entire culture reaching for anything right now, and everything, to satisfy their need, their hunger for truth. And uh, I, don't, I don't think I need to expound on that any, any further, but, but uh, people will dismiss God's Word and then, and then try to seek out. There's truth out there somewhere. I'm going to go find it. And and we know as believers that uh, God's Word is truth. And a, spe- and a skeptic of the Word can always find a way to rationalize their disbelief in the Word of God. So, uh, it's just, just prefacing some things and just some generalities here. Then um, there's the lie that's found its way into the church. That looks a lot like, well, the Bible means a lot of things to a lot of people. Right? Have you ever heard that one before? I've, I've heard variations of that. Um, you can, another one is you can twist the Bible to mean anything you want it to mean. I've heard, I've heard that, that one. And then uh, what you think is true for you might not be true for me. Hence, denominations. That's a hard truth, but when you break it down, denominations are just, well, here's what we don't believe about the Bible. And uh, that's that's scary if you if you get down to that little uh, that little truth. But so this has worked its way uh, into the body of Christ, and, and and really that's that thinking that I just mentioned is nothing more than what we talked about a little bit last week is relativism, relative truth. What's what's true for you might not be true for me, or selective interpretation. You remove all of the hard stuff out of the Bible. I want all the good stuff. I want the stuff that gives me the goosebumps. 
you can keep this other stuff. It seems a little bit too hard, a little bit too difficult to understand. But uh, that's really what it, what it boils down to. And, and it's trying to create your, your own version of God's Word to fit your lifestyle, right? Have we ever, have we ever done that? Or do you know anybody that, that tries to do that, to tries to, to make the Word of God fit their lifestyle, their, their lack of interest in maybe growing or maturing? Like, eh, God's alright with that. Like, He's, he's a pretty loving God. He's going he's gonna to look past that, that thing. But uh, like I said last week, if your thinking is not in line with the Word of God, you need to change your thinking. And I'm just as guilty of that as anybody. Like if my, there's, I'm sure there's areas in my thinking that do not align with God's Word somewhere, like some goofy stronghold that I've not been aware of, and I'm, I'm always asking, Holy Spirit, bring correction to me where I need it. So I'm, I'm open. I'm open to correction. I hope that's your heart, that's your uh, mindset, is that you are open for correction because we're never going to stop growing in Christ. We're never going to stop needing to mature in our walk in Christ. Do you, do you believe that? I, I believe that, and um, I'm open for it. So we're going to get right into things here. So God is truth. I don't, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He said it Himself. And Jesus is God in the flesh. Was God manifest in the flesh. Jesus is truth. God is truth. His Word is truth. His Word is life. God's Word isn't up for negotiation, even though it seems to be in, in history. But um, it's not up for negotiation. And believing that the Bible is God's Word, is to believe that it is the authority on all life's matters. So, just to give you a great starting point, if you want to walk into something with a... I'm trying to process it in my, in, in my mind as I'm saying stuff, but if you want a good starting point, start with, how does God see this? Whatever this is. How does God see marriage? How does God see relationships? How does God see family? How does God see sexuality? How does God see finances? How does God see whatever? Fill in the blank. And that's where you start to walk out an abundant life in Christ. How does God see this? And Believing, again, believing that the Bible is God's Word is to believe it is the authority. It is the standard. We talked about that last week a little bit. It's the standard for everything. And, and that's, that's where we want to start. So let's start this short journey here today um, and answering our question, what about all the errors in the Bible? Let's see what the Bible has to say about itself. Let's start there. So we're going to start in the book of Psalm. Psalm 119.160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. 
the entirety. I think that's everything. Everything in your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And let's continue on. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. These are big words they start out with. All, every, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So there's no scripture that's not given by inspiration of God. And this is again what the Bible says about itself. Let's continue on. John 10.35, Jesus actually said this, the scripture cannot be broken. This was part of a conversation he was having with people that was about, about ready to stone him. And a bunch of religious people. So he said the scripture cannot be broken. That's something notable. Matthew 5.18 says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. This is Jesus saying this. The Word made flesh saying this. And just to reveal who I am, I believe... uh, I, believe how, I want to believe how Jesus believes. So, he believes that the Word of God is the standard. He, 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 we just saw two, two scriptures here uh, that, that talk about what he, how he views the Word of God. And um, we kind of mentioned this last week and, and going through the book of Isaiah and how uh, you know, the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and, and 150 B.C. I think it was dated back to and then the last... Uh, copy prior to that was like 980, so about a thousand year difference. And, and not one thing was different about that book and the findings. It wasn't even missing a piece of punctuation, which is talking about in this verse, one jot or one tittle. Not even punctuation was missing from those two um, books that were a thousand years different. That's something. That's that's miraculous in itself. It's miraculous in itself. And First Peter one twenty five says the word of the Lord endures forever. So the Bible makes it very clear in these scriptures that it is indeed the inspired word of God. And let's just kind of walk through what some of the writers have to say about the word of God. And we learned last week there's over forty. Writers of the Word of God. God inspired by Holy Spirit. Forty, over 40 different people to, to pen the Word of God. So we're going to start with King David. We're going to start with King David in 2 Samuel 23. 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His Word was on my tongue. How many knows David wrote a few psalms in his, in his day? So he says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. In Isaiah 51.16, it says, I have put my words in your mouth. And Jeremiah 1.9 similarly says, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And many of the warnings to Israel from the prophet Isaiah were followed by, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So these prophets declared that what they were saying was inspired by 
that were speaking on God's behalf, anointed of Holy Spirit, speaking the Word of God. Let's go to the New Testament, and we're going to look in the book of Luke first. Luke 1.3, the writer, Luke, saying right off the bat in verse 3, having had perfect understanding of all things. So he had, he's declaring right here, he was given perfect understanding of all things to write, as directed by Holy Spirit, the Gospel of, of Luke. And he also wrote Acts, if you didn't know that. In 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 7, Paul says his speech is the demonstration of the Spirit and of power and the wisdom of God. So Paul's saying, he's kind of implying it's not him that's just writing us. It's a demonstration of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and of power. And it's the wisdom of God that he's penning. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. And we open up in prayer and, and citing, stating that Holy Spirit is the great teacher. And that's who inspired all of these authors, these over 40 authors, to write, to pen the Word of God. And they're quick to acknowledge that. I mean, they wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually. Um, Matthew 4.4 says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's we all know that was Jesus saying that. So he's saying the same thing as we just read from previous scriptures that these words are from God's mouth, are from God's heart, inspired by Holy Spirit for men to pen throughout the entirety of scripture. And that's why we can easily say it is the standard that we're to live by. Let's take a look at some stats real quick, just kind of rolling through here. So the first one's not exactly a stat, but the Greek word, we read 2 Timothy 3.16 and Matthew 4.4 4 a couple minutes ago. But the Greek word from these scriptures literally means from the mouth of God. From the mouth of God. And as far as stats go, the first one, thus saith the Lord, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, appear at least 600 times in Scripture. And there are 3,000 3, references of the Bible being the Word of God. And then the New Testament quotes the Old Testament over 320 times. Genesis, 60 times just in itself. And Genesis is the most maligned book in the Bible, I think, from what I've read and studied a little bit on. And, and it alludes to it more than 300 times. So the New Testament 
over 320 times, quotes the Old Testament, and alludes to it more than 300 times. There were, you know, do you understand there were years, we, we covered this again last week, but there were years, even centuries, between these writers penning Scripture. So there's no collusion going on here. That all, all of these references, all of these times we see these things throughout Scripture, it's not like people got together and said, okay, you're going you're gonna to put that in yours? I mean, these, there's centuries between a lot of these. And, and just kind of going through this and looking through this, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, I almost don't want to make a reference to it, but somebody put, somebody created something, I'm not sure who it was, but my son showed it to me last week. He's like, are you going to put this in there? I might put it in there eventually, but... Somebody did like a cross-reference of scriptures from New Testament, Old Testament, and it's like a beautiful rainbow of back and forth. And I don't, has anybody seen anything like that? I've seen it on social media, whatever. I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll dig it up and maybe uh, we'll, we'll throw it out there. But it's interesting, all of the it's just cross-references, and it's it's kind of a beautiful like illustration of of the beauty of scripture. So. I shouldn't have said that without showing you the picture. So maybe later. Um, so let's get back to this. So just going through this, in reality, I've I come to the thought, like, in the cross of mind, it seems to take more faith to not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The more you dig into Scripture, the more you see things like this, the more you see the beauty of Scripture and and just the, the, the flow, the beautiful flow of Scripture and the beautiful um, common thread, just seeing how Holy Spirit used all these different people from all of these different backgrounds, all of these different ages to pen the beauty of the love letter of the Word of God to us. Um, we're going to look into three I didn't even know about truthfully. I mean, maybe one of them I did, but I didn't even know these were an issue. But I'm going to cover, in short, three parent areas um, where people point out errors in the Word of God. And um, maybe this is going to be new to you too, but the first one I'm like, what? Like, that's a thing? But it is a thing. So where did Cain find his wife? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any of these. We're just going to kind of breeze through them. And, but... Um, I thought, this is, an, this is a point of error. Somebody brought this up. But did a little looking into this and reading. But, you know, Cain's wife isn't even known, for one thing. But she was somehow a point of discussion in the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. And um, you can look that up. You can Google that. But the whole thing with this kind of like pointing the finger at the error of the word here is there was a Christian prosecutor in this trial. This took place in Tennessee back in the day. It was to do with you know creationism, teaching creationism over evolution and, and all that. But the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial, you can go back and look at that. Um, I'm not going to spend any time on that. But the, the, this Christian prosecutor couldn't answer a question posed by an ACLU lawyer of where Cain's wife came from. He's like, I don't know. He's like, I let the agnostic. His answer was something along the lines of, I let the agnostics take care of that. And like, he couldn't give an answer to that. And 
And this, Cain's wife apparently was also mentioned in the movie Inherit the Wind, which is a, a, um, taken from that Scopes Monkey Trial. And also in the movie Contact, if you ever remember a movie Contact with Jodie Foster back, I think it was in the 90s or something, I think I watched it, but it was the anti-Christian type movie. Carl Sagan, uh, I think, wrote a book on it, and it was kind of loosely based on that. But it was, Cain's wife was mentioned in that too, as far as like, where'd she come from? Uh, you know, and, and, and pointing it as a, a, a point, using it as a point of error in the Bible. And um, again, I had no idea. I'm, I'm so clueless to this, but apparently it's a hot topic, and it's been a hot topic for hundreds of years or something. But the argument is that there, there must have been other races for Cain to find a wife. And that's what they were getting at. Like, there must have been other races. How would he find a wife? Well, they're overlooking a fairly obvious. I would, even as a kid, I would have thought, uh, duh, he probably married his sister. I mean, there weren't many people on earth then, right? So the argument, again, rejects the obvious answer. Cain probably married a sister or a close relative, a niece. And then, and Adam and Eve, you know, they did have more children, male and female, and, and according to biblical text, Jewish history, and some of, I think even, we're not talking about the uh, Josephus, if you've heard of him, but he cites that he, Adam and Eve had about, it was around 33 boys and 23 girls or something. Um, that's just part of Jewish history, but, um, so he goes into that, but the follow-up question, you know, when you say that, well, that seems fairly obvious. That's the answer is he most likely married his sister or a close relative. And then they're like, well, doesn't that violate the, the Bible? And incest and all that stuff. And well, here's the deal. No, the command from Moses to not marry a close relation didn't come until Leviticus 18.20. So they're injecting something in there that's not even applicable at that time. So that's it. And, you know, the skeptics of the Bible, um, uh, they'll reject truth. And, and, you know, they're all about, they're all about, like, being open to immorality, if you will. Um, and yet, in this point, they want to use it against Christians. You know, they're like loosey-goosey, and then it's like, oh, no, wait, that's, it, that's incest if you were to do that. But, uh, as we saw, that that law was actually not even, didn't show up until Leviticus 18.20. So the reality is that we all, didn't we all really come from the same mom and dad? Adam and Eve, right? So, but yeah, uh, and then even back then, like genetic defects weren't even a thing. It was like, it was right off, out of the gate, right? So that wasn't even a thing back then, but... So that's the thing. Did anybody know about this argument? No, I didn't either. So it's kind of a little bit funny, but it's not. But So that's that. It was just cited in the study, and I thought, well, here we go. We're going to learn about this. So it's funny how they overlook the obvious, though, that he would have married his sister so or niece or something. So we're going to get out of that. So let's go into another area of argument. I think we all know this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, this is another area of where people point out, you know, the error. And it's, uh, it's to do with Jonah, right? Jonah, could Jonah really survive in a fish's belly? 
And um, I know Pastor Chad shared this um, more than once, but in just local community here, I think there was discussion. Somebody was a pastor or somebody in a, a local church was talking, and, and the discussion came up about Jonah and stuff. And they're like, well, we don't really actually believe that. That was just kind of like a, you know, an illustration, a metaphor type thing. And I'm like, that's strange that people would, in the body of Christ would think that, but apparently it's a thing. So, But uh, skeptics of the Bible uh, say, of course, this could never happen. This is Jewish mythology and all this stuff. And, and uh, I'm not going to go down any rabbit holes with this, but I mean, from the point of view being in the body of Christ, I mean, it's just, we're going to, you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this. But um, the literary style of Jonah uh, is that of a historical account. It's not, it doesn't um, display any level of parable or myth or allegory. The whole literary, literary style is an actual historical account. So without a doubt, how many knows that this was, if you've read the book of Jonah, you've heard you know, sermons on it, whatever, you know, it's, without a doubt, it's a miracle. Okay? It's, it's miraculous. Um, it is, apparently there's been some scientific study that it has proven that you, you could actually survive. There would be enough oxygen in there. You'd be a little different color coming out uh, from the stomach bile and all that, bleached by that. But um, there is um, study done that it could actually, you could actually, it could actually happen. But all in all, breaking it down, this was a miracle. So I have no problem believing the God of the universe, who created everything we see—the solar system, the planets, the earth—everything we see couldn't somehow. Um, intervene in the created order. So I, I think he, he, that'd be an easy one for him to involve himself in, in the created order. And the, the objections against this account of Jonah uh, don't come from the textual or, or logical problems that you would think it would come from. It was, it was, it was the whole um, the predis- predisposition against um, miraculous occurrences. People just automatically believe there's no such thing as miracles. And I think, I think the biggest part of this whole account of Jonah, to me, the biggest miracle um, is that the people of Nineveh actually responded and repented of their wickedness and turned to God. I, from what I understand, these people were horrifying. I mean, they were like depths of evil level people. And, um, I mean, I've heard people in the past reference some things they did and skinning people alive and all this stuff. And, it, you know, it, it just, it was pretty evil. But out of that whole account, that's the most miraculous thing is to me is um, that Nineveh actually repented when Jonah got puked up on the beach and preached God to him. They actually repented. But... The takeaway for me is Jesus referencing this. Jesus referencing this. So we're going to take a look. Jesus took this story to be literally true. And like I said a few minutes ago, I'm going to side with Jesus on this stuff. So let's just look at a couple references that Jesus made about Jonah. So and we're going to start in Matthew 12. Matthew 12:40 says, Jesus said this, For as Jonah was three days 
and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, very clearly, why would Jesus use this if it was a big made-up fairy tale? Jesus literally believed, and he was using it as a reflection of what was going to be happening to him uh, during his crucifixion and resurrection. So, that's the first reference Jesus makes to Jonah. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So, my question myself is, who am I to disagree with Jesus? So Jesus actually pointed to the account of Jonah, and he the implication here is he believed it was true. And he used it as a frame of reference for who he was who he was talking to. So that's it. Like I said, I wasn't going to go super deep, but for me, Jesus even referring to this is enough for me to say, hey, yeah, it really happened. So I don't know where you're on in that, but that's where I'm at. So, and finally, we're going to look at a last point, and this is understandable why this would be pointed to as error or whatever. And we're going to go a little bit more in-depth on this, not super, super in-depth, but we're going to look at one more place in Scripture where skeptics like to point out there's errors here. So, don't the biblical accounts of resurrection morning conflict? So that's, that's a point of error people point at. And you know, really, when it comes to Jesus', Jesus death and resurrection, that's, that's what all of Christianity hinges on, is the resurrection of Jesus. If that didn't happen, this would be all for naught. Right? So they like to, to, to point that out and possible errors in there and all this stuff. But we're going to walk through this a little bit. So no gospel writer gives every detail about what happened through the account of Jesus' um, death and resurrection. So they don't all give every single detail. But all the gospels convey the core facts. So we're going to look at these core facts regarding Jesus' death and resurrection that are agreed upon by all four Gospels. So, for starters, Jesus, they all agree that Jesus was dead and he was buried. See, he, was, he died and he was buried. Next, the disciples were all devastated by this occurrence, this happening. And then next, the disciples scattered in fear and despair. So all of these, again, this is all Gospels agreeing on these core points. Uh, the next one, the stone was removed on the third day. That's, that's the, the fourth point. The fifth point, the tomb was found empty. They all agree that the tomb was empty. The next point, angels appeared and conveyed a message after Jesus was resurrected. The next one, they all believed that Jesus had risen. The next one, Jesus appeared to all of his disciples after his resurrection. And finally, all of the disciples eventually accepted his resurrection as conclusive. So, I think Thomas was the last one to come in, right? So, all of the Gospels agree on these core issues. And that's a big key thing to know. And 
But they all are the, the, the so it's the same story, but with different details. And I know that we have a skewed, you know, journalism isn't what it used to be, right? So it's not like here's the narrative, everybody say the same thing. So we're in a different time, but in real journalism, uh, covering the same story and reporting different details, that's kind of how it goes, right? And if real journalists got together about the same story, they would have different details, but it would be the same story. And that's kind of the picture of the gospel writers. Same story, but they all have a little bit different details. And if every account, if every gospel account of this was the same, then there would be some issues, right? There would be, okay, there was some collusion here. Skeptics could easily point that out, right? But it wasn't the case. And in court, like in a, in a courtroom, um, if there's an agreement on a main point with differing details about this main point, it actually adds validity and credibility to the whole thing, right? So that's kind of a, a common sense kind of thing, but and that's, that's what's going on here. And, and there's no details in one gospel that contradict a detail from another gospel. So the Gospels don't contradict each other with the details they have in, in and of themselves. It's all, that's all pointing to the, the same core account. So we're going to look at um, just three things, I think. Three things we're going to cover. Um, we're going to look at the time of the day that the people arrived at the tomb according to the four Gospels. So this, one, this is one area where they're like, oh, look at these errors, all this. So we're going to look at the time of the day that each one talks about and how they, they cover it in their own gospel. So in Matthew, Matthew says it was dawn in Matthew 20, 28.1. Mark says when the sun had risen in Mark 16.2. Luke says it was very early and that's in Luke 24.1. And John says it was still dark and that's found in John 20 verse 1. So the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem is three to five miles and the walk in reality, the walk from Bethany to Jerusalem could have easily taken long enough for the sky to go from dark to daylight. So there's no, this is, this is kind of just like common, this is just logic. This is just logic. The way they each called out the time of day that this was going on. This, this part of the account was going on. So, um, Again, that's one area where they point to, skeptics point to as error in Scripture. So we're going to look at another point of interest, um, skeptics uh, like to point out, is the number of women. I know none of us have ever probably thought about this, right? I don't, I don't know. But this is the, the number of women who are present at the tomb on resurrection morning. Apparently this is a place where skeptics point out, well, there's error here. So, Matthew refers to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in Matthew 21. Mark refers to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. I think I heard it pronounced Salome on The Chosen. So, that's got to be right. Um, and that's in Mark 16.1. Uh, Luke uses they uh, in Luke 24.1. And John refers to Mary Magdalene in John 20, verse 1. 
None of, this, none of the Gospels say only Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Uh, Luke 24.10 also mentions Joanna and the other women. Uh, mention, let's see, and the other women, uh, let's see. Okay, I'm trying to figure out my notes here. So mention of one person by a certain writer doesn't rule out the possible inclusion of other persons in these accounts. So just because you mention one person doesn't mean you're, it, it, there's not a possible inclusion of other people. And again, this is just an area of like, oh, there's some sketchy stuff going on here, but it's really clear when you break it down and not one of these said that only Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And because one doesn't cover the other ones, that it doesn't, it doesn't imply that there weren't more involved in this. Again, these are different details from different writers all coming to the same exact account, same exact story. So I know this is super exciting and you're on the edge of your seat. You guys are... Calm down out there. This is one of those messages. Trust me, it's not as fun either, given it. So, But it's interesting. Nonetheless, to me anyways. So finally, we're going to look at the issue skeptics point out regarding angels at the empty tomb. So angels at the empty tomb. And this is kind of a shorter one. Matthew and Mark mention one angel. And Matthew 28, 2 and Mark 16, 5. And then Luke and John mentioned two angels. And Luke 24, 4 and John 20, 12. So Matthew and Mark never say only one angel appeared. So they're not, it's not coming up against what Luke and John mention in their Gospels. No writer says that only one angel spoke. So each Gospel writer's perspective is distinct and unique, but it's not contradictory. So just because they don't say the same exact thing, they're not not saying, how do I say that? They're not um, contradicting the other gospel writers' accounts with their details. So, is that clear? I'm getting, I'm getting tongue twisted up here a little bit, so I think it's time to about stop here, coming for a landing. So, can you believe it's 11.15 right now? All right, so all in all, God didn't write a book full of mistakes. And maybe I stumbled and fumbled through that a little bit too, you know, oddly. I don't know. But this isn't, this isn't uh, the easiest thing to roll out. But all in all, I, I enjoyed going through it. And, it. and if anything, I found out people have issues with this stuff. And that's uh, so why I learned a couple things. But um, God's Word is not error-prone. And it remains the undeniable truth. And again, I, we're preaching to the choir here. Um, God's Word is the standard. And uh, I, I think the, ma- the main thing I want to just kind of reiterate over and over is if our thinking is different from the Word of God, the inspired Word of God as we... As we read through Scripture that that talked about what the Word of God is, and we read through Scripture that the authors themselves, how they viewed the Word of God, 
being inspired by Holy Spirit as they wrote the Word of God, as they penned it. Um, we see it is the standard. And, and again, if our thinking does not line up with this standard, if our thinking does not line up with the way God thinks, like God's Word is God's will. One and the same. So, if our thinking doesn't line up, then we need to line up our thinking with His Word. And then you'll actually see, according to Romans 12 too, we'll actually see transformation in our life that'll lead to experiencing the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. So, I'm going to leave you with this Scripture. And um, that kind of just, I was just spending a little time in the Word this morning myself and just just reading, and, and the scripture in Hebrews 4.12 came up. And I'm going to read it out of the Amplified Classic. And then when I'm done, we're just going to enter into one last uh, song of worship, and then uh, we can be dismissed. But I want to read this and just listen to this scripture in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12 out of the Amplified Classic. It says, For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power making it active, operative, energizing, and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, the soul, and the immortal spirit, and of joints and marrow, of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. God's Word will reveal our hearts as we give ourselves to it. And His Word is life. Amen? His Word is health to all of our bones. His Word is alive, according to the Scripture. And I pray that you would choose to sow this living word in your heart. That it may produce fruit in your life. And like I said, that we may walk in that John 10.10 truth. That He came to give us life and life more abundantly. And we cannot experience that life that He's speaking of apart from sowing His word in our heart to see that transformation. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.